Well, good morning. Well, remember last week when I said it was really cold? Wow, this is even, somehow it's even colder. But uh, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for braving the cold on this, uh, this Valentine's Day. And when I think of Valentine's Day, of course, I think of my Valentine, my wife, Tammy. Uh, and she, on the night we got engaged, told me that she had always dreamed of having a 1940s theme wedding. Now, I'll admit to you, this was a shock to me, uh, and I thought, well, there's some fine print. No, no I didn't say that. But I, if you know my wife, Tammy, you know how creative and awesome she is at everything, so I knew it would be outstanding, whatever it was, and I didn't really care. As long as I got to marry her, we'll do it however you want to do it. And so we had this 1940s theme wedding, and it was, it was great. We, we uh, apparently, during the, the 40s, um, there, they would have these airplane hangar dances. They called them hangar dances. And so they would, uh, they would have these uh, kind of banquets and, and all this stuff. So we said, well, let's just have our wedding reception uh, in an airplane hangar. So we found one in South St. Paul, Fleming Field. Uh, and it happened to be right in kind of co uh, connection with uh, the, uh, an event that occurred previously that was an actual hangar dance that they had. So we got the benefit of having all the decorations. The World War II airplanes were there. We had a 1942 Packard car that drove us around. All of the people in our wedding party rented uh, costumes from the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. And, and, and Tammy, uh, she remodeled her Aunt Eileen's wedding dress from 1939 and had reconfigured it. So it was, it was great. It was a wonderful experience. People still uh, talk about it to us to this day. And that's the thing about weddings, right? Even if they're not a big production like what I just described, even if it's just, you know, a couple of folks and, and, and the minister and maybe a witness or two, uh, the reality is that weddings are significant. Weddings are special. Weddings are the time where, where God is bringing people together in new ways, uniting people together uh, in new ways. And so regardless of whether or not you're married, I bet that you've been to a fair number of weddings yourself. You've been to weddings most likely. If you haven't, well, you will, because this is what we do. We get together and we celebrate these, these times. And then because they are significant events, there are things about each one of these weddings that stand out to us, right? There's something probably, if you've been to a fair number of weddings, there's something that's significant that you probably remember about each and every one of those things. A lot of times, they're the embarrassing things that we remember, right? Because despite our best planning and our attempts to have everything go perfectly, something always goes wrong, right? And so when the, the more embarrassing, whatever the situation is, uh, the more likely it is that that's what pops into your mind when you start thinking about moments at weddings. Right before our wedding ceremony started, Tammy's mom turned around too fast with a glass of apple juice and dumped it all down the front of Tammy's dress, right? And so I wasn't in the room, but there was a bunch of ladies in the room there, and there was just a collective gasp. <gasps> And everyone kind of just waited to see how she would react. But she laughed and she said, well, at least it wasn't grape juice. 
And so the wedding went off without a hitch. Nobody noticed. It wasn't, it wasn't obvious to anyone what had happened because the, the apple juice was just enough, light enough anyway, that, that it, after it dried, it didn't really show up on the dress and you, you couldn't really see it. It wasn't very obvious. The only thing obvious to me was that she was the most beautiful bride I had ever seen. That, that's all that mattered to me is that I get to marry this woman. And so, you know, but what if it had been grape juice? What if it had been grape juice? What if somebody had spilled grape juice all down the front? That would be probably something that you would remember at a wedding, right? What are the things that pop into your mind? Like, because sometimes you never live these things down. Uh, something can happen at a wedding that will follow you from that point on. Like, oh, it was your wedding that, uh, you know, the, the best man gave that terrible toast. Or, oh, I remember, that was the wedding we went to where right before the bride was supposed to say, I do, the power went out. Right? Or, or like at my parents' wedding, my grandfather was the minister, and he went to get something out of a file cabinet, and a, we, they only found this out later. The only thing they knew in the moment was that he had lost the wedding rings. He had lost the wedding rings. He shows up to do the ceremony, he's got no rings. Because he had leaned over to get something out of a file cabinet, and he had the rings in his pocket, and they fell out into the file cabinet. So they got married with, with somebody else's rings till he could find them. So there's always something that we remember about weddings. And so today, we, we are going to have a special invitation to a wedding that you've probably heard about. This is, this is often called the wedding at Cana. It's where Jesus himself is present at the wedding, and he does something amazing because he turns water into wine. Now, that, of course, is usually the part of the story that we remember the most, is water into wine, and that is a significant part of the story, but there's lots of other things going around. It's, it's significant beyond what it just might appear at the surface, and so we're going to go over this together. So you've been invited, I've been invited, we're going to go to this wedding feast, this celebration in just a moment, but before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We know that it is by the power of your Holy Spirit that you draw the church together, that, that you knit us together in ways that we become your body. And so, Lord, we, we ask right now in these moments that you have your way with us in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits, that we might turn to you and follow after you more completely than we ever have before, that we turn to you and recognize you as the as the true source of life. And so we ask now, Lord, that, that you change the, the stumbling and fumbling language, human language, into your very word, and that you come right now in this time that we have together and put the old to death and raise us to new life in you, in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, it's John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And then we're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 to 11. Again, this, a lot of this sounds familiar, and so I'm going to read it in just a moment. But before I do, I just I want to give us a couple of things to note about weddings at this particular time in this particular place. And so the first thing is that weddings were the biggest lifetime event in people's lives. This, this was it. And so there weren't, even that very, there weren't even very many of them that occurred 
in a, a particular, there might only be one or two weddings a year, especially in this particular place in Cana. Cana is a very small town, small area uh, north of Nazareth. It's kind of way out in the middle of nowhere. And so this, the other part about it is that it draws all different kinds of people from the region to this wedding celebration. So it's not just, you know, a, a few people here and there. Everyone in the area, everyone in the region there is invited to the wedding celebration, the wedding feast. It's, it's a big deal. But then, I don't know if you remember this, but right before Christmas, we talked about engagements. And we, we, we used the fun word that everybody loves to say, betrothal. Uh, I'm betrothed to that person. That's, that's fun. But we talked about that this, this idea of what it meant at this time to be engaged or betrothed to another person was not just, hey, let's get married. There was a process where there was the, the bride and groom were considered legally married, but then there was a betrothal period of time that lasted for a year where the bride and groom, even though legally married, could not be with each other, could only talk to each other from a distance, uh, could have no real contact with each other. Now, during that time, the bridegroom, or the, the groom as we might call it, the husband, the, he is supposed to be, during that time, figuring out how he is going to take care of his new wife. He's supposed to be out finding a place for them to live, uh, which most often was building on another room in the existing father's home, uh, father of the husband. They would add another room on, and then that's where the family, uh, the new husband and wife would, would come to live. Or, you know, they would sort out some other housing arrangement. That, but that, this idea of adding room, all these people live together. Again, this is all about bringing people together. So this, this was supposed to be a time where he's proving himself to be um, responsible, that he's proving himself to be able to take care of the bride, and he's proving that to the bride, he's proving that to the bride's family, and he's proving it also to uh, society in general, because this was all kind of more connected than you and I might experience uh, in, in this particular uh, culture of today. And so the, the whole culmination of all of this is the wedding feast. And so this wedding feast is, is a multi-day thing. It's not just like what, okay, there's a kind of a typical American culture of weddings that might be like, well, we have a 45-minute ceremony, and then we have a few-hour reception. Some of you come from cultures that have much longer wedding processes. Uh, and if you've ever been to, to a, a wedding from a, a culture other than your own, you'll know that every culture has unique practices that they have for their, their weddings. And so some of you might be from a culture that the wedding celebration is a longer period of time. And if you are, then you know that it's a lot more to coordinate all of these details to make sure that everything goes right. Like we said, something is always gonna go wrong. Well, in this particular wedding, at this particular time, for starts, it's different because the guest list includes the one and only Jesus himself. Now, of course, Jesus is present uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit in weddings all the time, yes, but in this particular case, he's not only on the guest list, he's physically at the wedding. That automatically changes things. But it doesn't change the fact that guess what? Not everything goes right. 
So let's, uh, let's read in chapter 2, starting at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jewish people for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now notice that right at the end of that, that verse, it says, as a result of all of this, his disciples believed in him. Remember, John tells us in John chapter 20, that's his whole purpose in writing this gospel, documenting all of this, is so that we might know who Jesus is, but not just know about him, but to know him and to believe him and to trust in him. And so there's something going on in this wedding, this celebration, that we got to pay a little bit more attention to. It's also interesting that this is the first, John says this is the first sign, he calls it. You and I might call signs miracles, but John calls them signs, again, because he's pointing people to knowing Jesus. And so there's something significant just about the fact that this is the first sign that is recorded. This is like the announcement of Jesus' arrival. Uh, it's how he launches his public ministry in this particular gospel. Okay, so now think about maybe, uh, how about when a political candidate decides to run for office? There's a, a very carefully coordinated press conference to make this type of announcement, right? And why do they do that? Because there's only, it's like your parents used to tell you, there's only one chance to make a first impression. And so you want to make sure that you're making the right impression. And when that press conference goes off and the, the candidate is able to, to identify themselves as who they really want to be known to be, uh, then that, that works out great. And sometimes it doesn't work out great. And then it haunts that candidate from that point forward. So the fact that this sign, turning water into wine at this particular wedding, in a seemingly you know, insignificant event, all right, well, so it's a wedding, big deal. They ran out of wine, who cares? Why did Jesus intervene in the first place? And why is this the first sign that John tells us about? Because honestly, if you think about it, what are the, the more common signs or miracles that we think of when we think of Jesus? I mean, we think of things like, okay, casting out demons, uh, giving sight to the blind, um, healing sick people, even raising the dead. Those are the kinds of miracles and signs that we're kind of more thinking about when we're thinking about, well, Jesus' signs and miracles and all this stuff. But we've got this. We've got to deal with this. And the first clue we have to think about is, what's this whole idea of the feast 
this concept of a feast is something that we all at least know something about. Maybe it's you get to, your family gets together at Thanksgiving, or, or maybe you have another special day that you celebrate as a family, and, and people come together and they have a really big meal. It's a big feast. There's something rooted in Scripture about feasting that we've got to pay attention to. Uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, recorded these amazing promises of God when he himself talked about a feast. And he does this in a way that helps us understand God's relationship to his people. the, The whole feast idea is a way that God is helping us understand who he is and what he does for us. So take a look at Isaiah chapter 25, verses six to eight. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So again, this this feast idea, it's the Lord himself who prepares this feast. He prepares this feast at a table. And then he invites you and I to have a seat at that table. And so this, this idea that the Lord is doing this, the Lord is the one who really is the Lord of the feast, is something that we need to keep in mind through this whole thing. And it's not just any, you know, it's not just like a couple of, peanut butter sandwiches and some, uh, you know, juice boxes here. We're talking about the finest meats, the best wine. It's extravagant. It's abundant. It's significant. And the Lord is saying he is the Lord of the feast. And, And we might miss this at first, but this, the thing that's really running through this narrative is joy. We might not see that at first because we oftentimes don't know this this one key piece of information when it comes to all this. Wine is often used in scripture as a metaphor or a way to point to the blessings of God or even the presence of God. And so wine, it's not just the, the actual wine, it's what the wine represents that we're supposed to understand here. The presence of God, the the abundance of God. In Deuteronomy 28, uh, you can find this for yourself, but uh, it basically says that when there is good wine, then that's considered to be a blessing from God. And when there's no wine, then it's considered to be a curse from God. Uh, You might even say it this way, when there is good wine, God is with us. When there is no wine, God is not with us. Matter of fact, the Jewish rabbis have a saying, where there is no wine, there is no joy. Where there is no wine, there is no joy. Psalm uh, 104, the Lord talks about uh, a specific kind of wine that he gives his people, and it talks about it in this way. It's the kind of wine that gladdens the heart, gladdens the heart. So there's something about this that we should understand. And that is that the wine represents the presence of God and the abundance of what he gives us and how he gives us and how he invites us to his table where we don't belong, 
on our own strength and effort, but by his invitation, we get a chance to come to his table. And so when you think about the context of what that means at this particular wedding, it's not just a problem like, oh, we ran out of wine, and so we've got thirsty people on our hands, and, uh, and it's kind of a, a social blunder, and it's an embarrassment and all that kind of stuff. Think about what we just said about what the bridegroom is supposed to be doing during this betrothal time. He's supposed to be proving that he can handle the details. He's supposed to be proving that he can get things worked out. He's supposed to be proving that he can take care of his wife. If they get all the way to the wedding feast, to the celebration, and they run out of wine, uh, that's something that he will never live down. It will not only mark him as a failure, but also the couple together, and it would be an embarrassment to the whole family. This is a very honor and shame culture. They would acquire shame as a result of running out of wine. And some people at the banquet, at the celebration, would interpret them running out of wine as, well, God maybe is not approving of this marriage. Maybe God's not, not in this. And so it's, it's a bigger deal than just running out of wine. It's what they say an epic fail would be. And right when we see this maybe as just a social situation that's unfortunate, like, ah, shucks, I ran out of wine, Jesus sees an opportunity to reveal something about who he is and about how we should understand who he is so that we can come to know him better. But at first, let's be honest, I don't know if you remember this, when we read the scripture, it doesn't sound like he's all that interested in helping, right? Take a look again at verses three and four. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. What does Jesus say? Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now this whole idea of Woman sounds to us like it feels like Jesus is being disrespectful. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is not being disrespectful. This is a common address uh, towards somebody. But interestingly enough, it's a common address to somebody that you are separated from, somebody that you have some distance between you and them. It's somebody that certainly wouldn't be a close relationship to you. So this idea that Jesus says woman is strange, and it seems like what he's doing is putting a little bit of distance between himself and his mother, Mary. He's, he's putting a little bit of a distance there. Uh, now, now, Mary certainly, of course, gave birth to him and raised him. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean, because remember, Jesus, the angel Gabriel, came to Mary and said, you will bear a son. Even though she was a virgin, you will bear a son. This son will be the son of God. You are to call him Jesus, and he will save people from their sins. So Mary already knows there's something very special about Jesus anyway. She knows more about Jesus than any of these other people that are there. She's seen him along the way as she's raised him for all these years. We don't, at some point, Joseph must have died. We don't know how long ago, but Joseph is not on this particular scene. But here we have Mary, and there's this relationship then between mother and child. And I think that what Jesus is doing here is distancing himself from that particular relationship. Because the truth is, Mary needs a Messiah just as much as anybody else does. Mary needs a savior just as, just as much as anybody else does. And so to break that paradigm of mother and child, he addresses her as woman 
because she doesn't actually have any control over him. She does not have to be the one calling the shots. Uh, she, she certainly can, will be listened to by him, but she doesn't have power over him or what he does. And so that's the first part where he's putting a little distance there. But then the second, this, this phrase, uh, why do you involve me? First of all, this is not a phrase I would recommend using with your own mother. Uh, it is certainly not proved to work well for me. Uh, so just take that, those free tips. Uh, but this phrase is a common Hebrew idiom. It's a way for people to put distance between, like if somebody comes to you with a problem and you don't want to deal with it, you figure out a way how to sidestep it or move that person away to say, well, uh, what does this have to do with me? Or, or maybe it'd be something like, why do you think that this is my problem? Something like that. But then, so there's distance there. He's separating himself from the problem. First, he's separating himself from his mother. Then he's separating himself from the problem. And then he gives us a little bit of a clue as to what's really going on here when he says this peculiar phrase, my hour has not yet come. Well, now that's a very strange phrase. But this is a phrase that's used over and over and over again all throughout the Gospel of John. It starts out by Jesus continuing to say, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And then it moves as the, the, the whole thing goes. We get to the later chapters and all of a sudden it's, my hour is here. My hour is upon us. It's now. The hour has come. And what this means is the hour Jesus is talking about is the hour of his death. It's the hour of his crucifixion. It's the hour where he will be hung on a Roman cross. And so this, this whole thing is something where Jesus, at the very same time that all this is happening in real time at this wedding in Cana, Jesus is seeing something that is coming on the, on the horizon in the future that nobody else can see, that nobody else understands. He knows what's going to happen to him. And he also knows that just like we said, the, the wine represents the presence of God. We know in Jesus, when it gets all the way to the crucifixion, that Jesus' blood will be shed. And then that blood that is shed that saves us from our sin is also represented by wine. So there's this imagery that connects all these things together. Jesus is seeing the past, the present, and the future. And he's saying, there is a time coming where my blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of sin. But that time has not come quite yet. That's what he's saying. Matter of fact, if you want to just... Uh, if you want to just put it into a way that maybe we understand it better, it would be like Jesus saying to her, woman, what do you want me to do about it? It's not my time to die yet. Doesn't make any sense to us, at least at first. But once we know what he's really talking about, we start to understand that uh, Jesus is seeing it from a different perspective than we are. And Jesus is working his way toward the, the time when his hour will come, which honestly, is good news on a lot of levels. And one of those key things is that it seems like, well, again, this is just this is social inconvenience. It's something that's an embarrassment. Uh, Jesus is intervening now, and he hasn't done it yet, but Mary's saying, hey, well, you should really do something about this. Uh, and here's the good news for you and me today. It means that God doesn't just care about the big things 
but God also cares about the little things. It's not just about God moving mountains. It's also about God working just in the mundane details of our lives. And so we could say it this way. Jesus cares about both the tragedies and the trivial. He cares about the tragedies and the trivial. So where you and I might recognize this as an insignificant situation, Jesus is still involved. He still cares. If it concerns you, then it concerns him. And so the good news about Jesus for us is that we can go to him with anything that we are concerned about. And we can do that without fear of him thinking that somehow that's beneath him or that he doesn't want uh, to, to, to deal with it. He doesn't want to hear about it. No, part of being in a relationship with him is that we go to him with what concerns us, knowing that we will not be rejected. But there's also another piece of this. Mary reveals this in her response. We'll get to that in just a minute. But there's another piece of this. Jesus wants to make sure that we understand, just like he wanted to make sure his mother understood, that there is not a kind of a, an equal status in the relationship that we have with him. You know, Jesus is, in, Jesus is in control of our lives, not the other way around. Jesus is not like a genie who is waiting for us to come and ask him to do these wishes, and then he just gets to work and makes all of our wildest dreams come true. That's, that's not really what's happening. He's setting the relationship right in terms of we can go to him, and we can ask him for help, and we can uh, go to him with anything that concerns us, but that doesn't mean that we're always going to get what we want, and it doesn't even necessarily mean that we understand what he's trying to teach us or what he's trying to ask of us. And, and Mary, uh, I think this is, she gives us the best example here because her comment, they're out of wine. What does that really mean when she says to Jesus, they're out of wine? It's an indirect way of saying, I really think you should do something about this. I mean, you could imagine Mary going up to him and saying, they're out of wine, right? So there's this implication that she expects him to do something about it. But again, when she approaches him like a mother approaches a child, I could say like a father approaches a child too because I tell my kids to do stuff all the time. Most of the time, they don't do it. No, uh, I, I want us to understand that when, when she approaches Jesus like her child, that's when he rebukes her. That's when he says, ah, I'm going to get some distance here. Let's make sure we understand how this works. But this does not throw Mary off at all, which I think is fascinating because she's raised him. She's been with him for 30 years. She's seen how compassionate he is. She sees how much he cares about people and about the situations that we might think are unimportant, that he deeply is compassionate and cares. And so this is what she says in, in, in uh, verse five, she turns around to the servants after just basically being told, I don't want to deal with it. She turns around and tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now think about that. Now we might just skip over that and not realize the significance of that. This is a fantastic statement of faith. 
This is a fantastic statement of faith because what she's saying is that, look, I know that he can do the impossible. I know that he is compassionate and kind and caring. I know that he will give gifts abundantly. And so she's saying, do whatever he tells you, is a statement of faith that's a confession about who she knows Jesus to be. It's a simple sounding phrase. It's a simple phrase. But I, I ask you this today. What if we just took Mary's advice in our lives? What would be different or what would change in our lives if we just did what Jesus tells us? It sounds simple. But we all know that Jesus sometimes asks us to do things that don't make any sense to us. We don't understand, well, why would I, why would I do this? Why would I do that? And in this particular story, can you imagine being one of these servants? And he says, all right, fill up these six stone jars with water. Already that's, that's a head scratcher because you don't store wine in these stone containers. Uh, and those stone containers were intended for the purification water, for the ceremonial washing, so that doesn't make any sense. And then to top it all off, then he says, well, now take a big dip out of this and give it to the guy running the party. This sounds very strange, doesn't it? We don't understand what is going on here, but what would it be like in your life if we just chose to do what Jesus tells us? Because Jesus was working behind the scenes here in a way to reveal something about himself. And so it was not just to save the young couple from embarrassment, although he did do that. But he also is doing the same thing in your life and my life. He is always working in ways that sometimes we see and sometimes we don't see. And so I want us to think about this, that in this moment, in this act of, of creating the wine from the water, Jesus is telling us lots of things. He's, for one thing, he's telling us that the purification that comes from ceremonially washing your hands is never going to make you clean enough. But there is something that will make you clean enough. And he sees that on the horizon. He knows that his blood will be shed to accomplish what the water in those jars will never accomplish. And so the people don't understand that, but they still do it, and they do it, and here's what it is. Jesus proves in that moment that he is the Lord of the feast. Jesus is the Lord of the feast. The feast that was talked about in Isaiah, about, well, there's coming a time where death will be swallowed up, it's swallowed up in Jesus. It's swallowed up in the blood of Christ. So he knows that this is on the horizon. And so the people acting and doing the things he's telling them to do, they don't see the whole picture. But that doesn't mean that they're not blessed. They are blessed. And, and, and they're blessed through abundance because the true Lord of the feast gives this kind of wine or this kind of joy that will never run out. It will never run out. Look at verse 6. Nearby stood this, these six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jew, Jewish people for ceremonial washing. Now here we go. Each holding from 20 
to 30 gallons. Now, if I did the math correctly, that means that Jesus made somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. This is supposed to represent this level of abundance to us, that Jesus has given us more than enough, more than enough, more than we could ever ask or imagine or seek or even understand. Jesus has given us more than enough. And this is the kind of abundance, abundance that, that, Jesus, or that John talks about in chapter 1, verse 16, when he uses this phrase, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. It's abundant grace. It's grace that is extended out. In the abundance of Christ, it pours out and on to everybody this kind of grace. Because think about this. There are only a very small number of people in this whole situation that saw what he actually did, that experienced what he actually did. This water into wine thing, it was the servants, it was the disciples, it was his mother Mary, and that's about it. And yet, because Jesus gives grace upon grace, even though only a small number of people saw what he did, all the people benefited. All the people benefited. Grace upon grace. And remember, he didn't just give any old wine. He didn't just give average wine or, well, you know, I could take, take it or leave it. He gave the best wine. In matter of fact, it is so good that the master of the banquet says this line about, well, hey, most people give the good stuff first and then they bring the bad stuff later, but you have saved the best till now. Folks, there it is. Jesus, in this miracle, in this sign, is pointing people to him. The presence of God has come once and for all, full to the brim in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the source of joy. He's the source of joy. He's the Lord of the feast. And isn't it amazing for us to consider today? Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus himself drank our cup of sorrow and sin and shame and even death and gave us a cup of joy in return. He saw what needed to be done way before any of us could ever possibly understand it. Out of his abundance of compassion and grace and mercy, he cared for us so much. He wanted us at the table, the banquet table, but he was willing to go all the way to the cross to get it accomplished so that we could have that invitation, so that we could be invited to the celebration feast. So my question for you today is, what is your source of joy? What is your source of joy? When you think of everything and maybe the circumstances in your life, where do you find joy? Because if it's in anything other than Jesus, it will run out. Just like the wine ran out at this wedding, it will run out. And so I suppose I should say, just as a disclaimer here, I'm not talking about the wine itself being what this is all about. It's what the wine is pointing us to. 
the presence of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins made possible through the shedding of his blood. And so in the world that we live in, with the challenges and the struggles and all the the hardships that we face right now, we cannot will ourselves to have the kind of joy necessary to face the problems that we have. We need to be able to draw that joy from a source that is unending. And that source is Christ alone. That source is who Jesus is. We find our joy in his abundant grace because that's the only place that joy doesn't run out. And so when we think of of how we even face the the toughest challenges. We can do this without losing hope only when we know that it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The Lord, the true Lord of the feast has invited you to the table. Is that something that you want to go to? Because he's calling you and inviting you and giving you a seat at the table and and the joy that he provides, this abundance of joy, is something that we can't ever really understand. It's more than we can ask, more than we can seek, more than we can fathom. The true source of joy is Jesus. And that's my prayer for you today, is that you find your joy in Jesus, that you find your joy in Jesus and that all else fades away. All the ways that we try to conjure up joy that will only end up running out in the end. Find your joy in Jesus. More than we could ever ask, more than we could understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us by the the power of your holy and precious blood. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to face the world alone, but that you have given us your joy. Let that be our strength. Lord, would you change us, not just like a fixer-upper, but put the old to death and raise us to new life, new life in you, where we can know you more closely and more deeply and that we can follow you maybe in ways like we never have before. We thank you for the gift of your grace. We know we don't deserve your kindness and your compassion, but we thank you for restoring the relationship that we can have with you now only through Jesus, in whose name we pray.